You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Hey, everyone. Good morning. So uh, I just want to start by just saying thank you to everybody, to Bob and Aaron for having me talk here this morning. So one of the things that I am really interested in, really passionate about, is studying our culture and our media, things within our culture and our media, everything from uh, social media and how we use that, or podcasts, um, but also looking at things like elements of media like TV shows, films, um, fine art, and of course music, and I really love to look at these things and see where they overlap, where they intersect, and sometimes where they can synthesize with this idea of radical Christianity that we talk about here at Central. This is something that Central itself is involved in in a bunch of different ways. Um, One of the more obvious or overt of those ways is we put on these events called Filmosophy events that Andrew puts on where we get together uh, as a group and we'll watch a film together and then afterwards discuss the philosophy behind or some of what's going on within the film. Um, another way, maybe more a little bit more subtle that we do this, is in the music that you hear every Sunday. This may, for some of you who have been around for a while, this may come as a shock, but uh, Max and the band don't play Hillsong music every Sunday, right? This isn't Chris Tomlin, this isn't your typical worship music, but instead, what we do here at Central is we look for other artists within the quote-unquote secular space, right? Other artists that aren't necessarily writing hymns but whose music finds this way to transcend and to speak to these questions or this ineffable God that we approach as we discuss our deconstruction and our reconstruction here at Central. Um, And that song that you heard from Max just now and the band is, I think, a song that does this really well. Um, Was anybody familiar with this before Max Bledet? Had anybody heard this song before? If not, it's it's totally fine, one or two. this was a song I wasn't super familiar with until a few months ago when I came across it, um, oddly, because it's referenced in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and that's just sometimes how you come across things. Uh, but I've come to really love it in the last few months, and I've probably heard it about 100 times in the last week, and so I won't be listening to it a lot after this. Um, but if you aren't familiar with it, like Max said, that song is called God. It's by John Lennon. Um, and... I think it really speaks to this idea of deconstruction and reconstruction we talk about. I think art just does this in general. Our encounters and our experiences with art have this potential and this ability to act as a gateway to these mysteries that we explore. Um, This happens throughout all of art, right? I think this happens, this is why we go to art museums, this is why we go to see live theater. But for me personally, this never happens stronger than when I'm listening to music or experiencing uh, live music being performed. I have these memories, I have this this vivid memory from when I was growing up of uh, a Saturday where my mom was gone for the day for some reason, and my dad uh, took The Who's Live at Leeds, which if you haven't heard is a fantastic album, and put it on and just turned it all the way up. 
and we just spent the entire morning listening to The Who play live, super loud, and cleaning the house. For some reason, these are the memories that stick out in my childhood more than a lot of other things, sometimes more than vacations we went on, more than things I learned in school. I have all these other memories of just laying in front of the record player and pulling out albums, Sgt. Pepper's and Abbey Road, listen to a lot of Beatles, um, and, and just laying there and just pouring over liner notes and, and reading the lyrics while listening to the albums. These are the things somehow that have stuck with me throughout my life. Um, so for a little background on this song, uh, John Lennon, if you don't know, was in a band called The Beatles. That's that, I mean, that's like an absurd thing to say, right? Because obviously The Beatles were the, the biggest band of all time. Not only were they huge, though, they were such a hard-working band. In, in one year alone, in 1964, The Beatles put out two full-length albums, released a whole bunch of other singles, uh, made and released their biggest film, A Hard Day's Night, and still went on a world tour of 26 cities. This band, I mean, this was nonstop. These guys, for seven years, they released 15 music. It's hard to believe that they only existed as a band for seven years, and yet have become such a part of this cultural consciousness that we have. And so after all of that, after that breakup, God is... Uh, this song on this album called The Plastic Ono Band, which was the first album that John put out as a solo artist following the Beatles finally breaking up. It came out in 1970. Consequently, that's also the same year that the final Beatles album, Let It Be, came out. Uh, this came out at the end of 1970. And a lot of this album is John processing through, reacting, breaking down these things that have gone on in his life. Notably, that's two things. There's, there's several songs that deal with the death of his mother that happened earlier, and then the breakup of the, Beatle and the Beatles and the loss of this identity that he'd been carrying with him for these years. So the song begins with this line. You, you saw it all up on the screen. Um, the song begins with this line that John repeats twice. God is a concept by which we measure our pain. And that's a very enigmatic line. It's something that we could unpack here a lot this morning. Uh, it's actually not, even though it is maybe the most complex line in the song, it's not where I'm going to spend my time. Uh, suffice it to say that this is a line that came out of John spending a lot of time with a uh, psychotherapist here in Los Angeles after the Beatles broke up, processing through a lot of things. And essentially what John is getting at there is he's talking about this idea that, uh, that he had that the bigger one's pain, the more fervent they tend to hold on to or grasp onto a more fundamentalist or conservative opinion of God. That that tends to happen when pain is something that's large. But it's the rest of the song and really the structure of the song overall that really fascinates me. Because John, he follows this up with these 15 lines, these negations of things that he doesn't believe in. And it's a, I think it's a pretty interesting list. He talks about everything from philosophy to religion to politics, big abstract concepts. He even throws in some media elements in there. He puts in Elvis, Zimmerman, who is uh, Bob Dylan. That's his uh, real name. And then he throws in his own band, The Beatles, in there, right? And so what's he doing here, right? This isn't, for John, this wasn't some big atheist anthem. This wasn't something where he was trying to teach the world, these are all the things that I'm refusing or all the things that I'm not believing in. Instead, what John was doing here is he wrote this song about our worship of idols, our holding up in our worship of idols and ideologies. All of these items that he talks about, from Jesus to Buddha, 
from Yoga to Kennedy, even his own band, the Beatles themselves, are popular sources of thought and ideology that permeated the world within his lifetime. Some of these, John had no belief in himself. Uh, Hitler, obviously, is one of those, I would imagine. Um, John was also pretty ambivalent towards religion, so for him, Bible and Jesus were things that he didn't necessarily personally believe in, but there were other things in there that he had a great idolization in. Um, Elvis is one of those that his whole life, he really had idolized Elvis, and uh, he talked about how, he, uh, the Beatles often talked about how they were very sad that when they became popular, Elvis had lost his popularity, because that was their idol. But what John's doing here is he's publicly deconstructing himself. He's telling the world the process that he has gone through to strip these things away from his own belief system and his own deconstruction. And in doing that, he's inviting us to step in and to go through this journey and this process that he has been through as well. So he concludes with this line, right, the dream is over. And then he talks about what comes after that dream. You know, he says, the dream is over. Um, he says things like, I once was the walrus, a Beatles reference. Now I'm just John. Um, he moves through this new identity that he's built after this loss of his idols and his ideologies. And yet, right, the song doesn't end here. The song isn't a, it's not a nihilism that he just tears down the walls, just kind of burns it all down and then, and then walks away and leaves it. Instead, what John's doing here is a purposeful deconstruction. He's really going through methodically and taking these individual items out so that afterwards he can build a new space, so that he can build a new reordering of things out of it. And I think that this is the thing that is important for us here at Central, I think, to remember, and one of the things that we talk about quite often. We talk about, and I think most of us who come here pretty often are engaging in this process of deconstruction and reconstruction. We're engaging in this process of leaving maybe past ideas of religion behind and stepping into a new understanding. And I know for me, that's a process I've been going through for uh, about 10 years now. And it's very easy for me sometimes to look back at the way I believed before even five years ago, and to have this sense of maybe uh, shame about that, or to sometimes regret the thinking that I had before. To look back and to, to regret the ways in which my mind was very closed towards others around me, or the ways in which I didn't love people the way that I could uh, now, the way that I wasn't as open to others as I am now. I look back at the narrow-mindedness that I had, and it's easy to sort of regret that. But I think part of what John is getting at here when he wrote this song is this idea that this journey is necessary, that it's important to go through this dream. It's important to go through this process of being the dream weaver and to break that down in order to emerge as something new. And look where he came from, right? He, he comes from love me do and I want to hold your hand and where he emerges out of this is a whole new sense of songwriting. What emerges out of this is give peace a chance, is imagine, is war is over, that Christmas song, just because he mentions Christmas once at the beginning of it. Uh, so there's this writer that I really love named Richard Rohr that some of you may be familiar with uh, who talks about this sense of deconstruction and reconstruction a lot. And uh, I really love some of the things that he has to say about this. In Rohr's view, 
Deconstruction is a pathway that must have a beginning in order to have an end. See, it's actually great in Rohr's view to begin with a narrow sense of construction. To begin as a fundamentalist is a very good thing, a very important thing. Because when we're conservative or when we have a more fundamentalist viewpoint, we tend to have these grand experiences that let us know that there's this bigger world beyond us. We can have these other experiences. Maybe we, maybe we didn't define them the same way that we would define them now. Maybe we didn't view them the same way. Maybe they were much more rigid, rigid than they are now. But we see that there's this depth and this other dimension to the world. Rohr calls this stage our order. And it tends to be uh, a stage that consists of a very literal thinking. It tends to be a stage that consists of very tribal thinking, where we believe the other people, you know, everything that, that whatever is fed to us or whatever those around us believe. And it's in this sense of order that we construct these idols that we hang on to. Uh, idols both in the church and other idols outside the church, right? As we see, idols in media, idols in other spaces as well. Um, another thinker that we talk about a lot here is Peter Rollins. He's a, a philosopher um, that has a lot of work around deconstruction. And he talks about this construction of idols, that it partly occurs in a way in which um, fundamentalism tends to sell us Jesus as a solution to the problem of our darkness, our dissatisfaction, our pain, our inevitable death, right? That the good news of Christianity is sold to us as that which can fulfill our desire, as opposed to that which evokes a, a transformation in the way in which we desire itself. Jesus is sold to us so often as that thing that will seek or that will bring us fulfillment. Christ becomes just another object in the world of media and of fitness and of everything else that's offered to us in a way that can help us gain insight and ultimate satisfaction. That's part of that order and that idol that we often build. And then at some point, we encounter these, this, this thing, this event. Rohr refers to this as his big five of human transformation. So those are love, death, suffering, any notion of infinity, and any honest notion of God are the five things that he talks about that cause us to spark some sort of internal transformation within ourselves. When we encounter one of these things, our rational mind closes down. When we encounter one of these things, often our order no longer works. And then we're thrown into disorder. We're thrown into this sense where our construction breaks down. And remember, just we can only deconstruct that which we construct, right? We can only have disorder when we previously had order in our lives. And at the end of it, for Roar, uh, for many of us here, part of why I'm, I know many of us are still in this space, a reconstruction is what's important, is very important on the other side of the work. You have to move beyond that anger stage that you feel, that you feel when you get to that disorder. That's important to go through. It's important to call the previous construction BS so that you can move into a new space. And what tends to happen is often the fundamentalist or the conservative can tend to get caught in that first stage, in that order, in that uh, construction. But very often it's easy to get caught in that sense of deconstruction as well. It's easy to get caught in the space where we just throw everything out out of anger or out of spite, and we just walk away. And we just, we just throw it out the door and we move on to something else. 
that is a trap that we can easily fall into. But there's this third stage. This is one of the things that the mystics have often, throughout history and different faiths, have moved into, which is a, a different stage, a reorder or that reconstruction. A space where we're not naive. We go through that necessity of deconstruction. We've faced evil. We've seen the limitations of the rational. We begin to reconstruct something new on the other side. This third stage is by far the most difficult. We develop a sense, we, in order to be in this stage, you have to develop a sense of love and of mystery. You have to hold things like paradox in tension. You have to hold things um, in tension in order to reconstruct. But that's what allows us to experience the mystery and the divine around us. That's what allows us to transcend our thinking into a more enlightened state. Without these things, we quickly will run back to fundamentalism or run back to that first stage when things go tough, when it gets hard. And this is part of where I think in what we talk about here, where Jesus comes back into our purview, where Jesus comes back into our understanding. Jesus comes in and offers us an image of what it looks like to hold this sense of paradox and tension. The God-man who came not to destroy, but to fulfill, and yet still acts within a previous faith system. Jesus comes along and resolves the tension, not to do away with it, but so that we can hold it in our hearts and be okay with it. He comes along by accepting it and by becoming it himself. To jump back to Rollins one more time before we conclude here, In this reconstruction, we see that there's a a sense of a new understanding of Jesus. What if Jesus isn't the solution to some problem that we have in our lives of darkness and dissatisfaction? But what what if Jesus isn't the thing that is meant to bring us certainty and satisfaction, but instead places our attempts to find a solution for those issues directly into question themselves? Pete has this saying at the beginning of one of his books called The Idolatry of God that I really, really like, where he says, what if Christ does not fill the empty cup that we bring him, but rather smashes it to pieces, bringing freedom, not from our darkness or dissatisfaction, but freedom from our felt need to escape them. The darkness and dissatisfaction that makes their presence felt in our lives are not finally answered by certainty and satisfaction, but are rather stripped of their weight and robbed of their sting. There's another way in which I think this concept ties in with what is, with something that's going on this week. Um, if you don't know, this upcoming Wednesday is an event in the uh, church calendar. This upcoming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. It's something that isn't celebrated in a lot of non-denominational churches per se, but tends to be celebrated in, in Catholic churches or more Orthodox thinking. Right? This is the beginning of the Lent season, the 40 days that lead up to Easter. And in that process of celebrating Lent, in the, or in this process of Ash Wednesday, these 40 days, it tends to be a place for churches, for places of faith, um, for, for individuals to step back and to think about or sacrifice towards some deeper thinking. You know, when I was growing I grew up Catholic. Uh, when I was growing up, 
we always gave something up for those 40 days. Maybe, uh, I don't know. Did anybody, was anybody else part of that Lent tradition growing up? A bunch of people here, right? So what did we give up? We gave up chocolate. I remember one time as a sophomore, I gave up Mountain Dew for 40 days. What, what, what is that? Like, uh, right? But like, uh, you know, we, but the idea behind it is to think about those things which are, which could be difficult. To think about those things that we hold so close to us that they cloud our vision for seeing who God truly is, for seeing who Christ truly is. And to spend some time maybe deconstructing some of those things that we've put up in front of us so that we can move forward may not be the same terminology that I that was used when I was going to church, but that's really what's going on there. To give a space where we can spend some time deconstructing those things which we hold up as so dear and so close to us throughout the rest of the year. John Lennon gives us this list of these 15 items that he's deconstructed, or that we have deconstructed. It's an interesting list, but he often talked about how that list was never ending, how he really could have gone on forever in that understanding. He could have just listed an, in, an unending amount of things. Um, and it's interesting because he, cl- he concludes by saying he doesn't believe in Beatles. But that last line was actually originally intended to be left blank. Uh, he changed it in the recording session, but his original intent of the song was to just leave you a space, leave the listener a space where they could think about th- those things in their lives that they no longer believe in, that they could insert their own idol or ideology that needs to be deconstructed in there. You know, I think here today in L.A., there's a lot of things that we could put in that blank, right? We could say, I don't believe in CrossFit. I don't believe in Hillsong, I don't believe in Instagram, I don't believe in Facebook, I don't believe in Hollywood, I don't believe in Game of Thrones, that can be one. Uh, I don't believe in Trump, I don't believe in Bernie, I don't believe in elections, right? There's a lot of things that we could insert into that space that we personally don't believe in, that others need to deconstruct, that we need to deconstruct ourselves. At the inside of the pews, uh, there are some note cards here. And I would encourage you, if whoever's sitting there on the edge could just grab them and pass them down. There's some pencils. We didn't have quite enough writing instruments, so you might need to share here. But I'd love it if you would be willing to engage with me in a little exercise as we conclude here. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. Uh, communion is another great way that we um, that we kind of break down something that can often be an idol in the church, where instead of everybody coming forward and meeting one person in power, we feed each other, we serve each other in our communion. Um, and and after communion, we're going to take some time. You know, we, you're given a little bit of time to think, to meditate, to spend some time thinking. And what I would invite you to do would be just to take a moment and think about that question for you. How would you answer? That, how would you fill in that blank in your own life? What is it that you need to claim or would like to claim this morning that you don't believe in, that you need to strip away? So um, we're going to have communion here in a second, and then afterwards we'll have a little bit of a discussion around these items uh, themselves. So go ahead and just take a moment as, uh, as we prepare for communion. As usual, uh, communion here, as we do it, is, is alcohol-free. It's gluten-free, although today's a little bit different, just to let everybody know, we only have half gluten-free crackers. They'll be on this side of the room, so if you are over here and you're gluten-free, I encourage you just to step over here and get a 
cracker. But uh, it's alcohol-free, mostly gluten-free, and uh, free for all who wish to come to the table of Christ. Thank you. Each episode of The Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. Okay, so um, to start with, what, does anybody have something that they'd like to share? That um, how did you think about filling in that that blank of what you don't believe in? Anyone? Yeah. I don't believe in failure and success. success. That's good. I don't believe in hatred and injustice. Anyone else? Not other, yes. No, go ahead. Well, I had to kind of I had to kind of rephrase it so I could understand for myself what I'm saying. And when I said I don't believe in, what I meant was I don't believe that a fill-in-the-blank can save me, can rescue me from my pain or bring me perfect fulfillment. So one of my deepest longings is to have a partner in life. And so I don't believe that a romantic partner can fill those deepest, deepest longings. That's good. I think that's exactly what the song is getting at, too. That whatever that is that I don't believe in, it doesn't fulfill, right? It's not going to be that ultimate truth and fulfillment. Doug? I don't believe in anything in this world. I believe in God. He created us. He created the world, uh, the world and the universe. And he said that uh, his son was Jesus. I believe in that. That's great. Thank you, Doug. That's great. Anyone else or questions, comments? This, this Q&A time at the end is a time for right, feedback and reflection for your own thoughts. Disagreements, agreements, whatever. Anyone? Yeah, Andrew. Um, first of all, I thought it was awesome, man. I appreciate everything you said. It's, uh, I think it's a gateway to tons of different conversations I love to have. Um, <clears throat> so my one, I guess, uh, maybe challenge, uh, is so the way you're framing it, well, it, it reminded me of the, I can't remember which author uh, alluded to this. I know Aaron's talked about it before, but it's sort of like the three stages of spiritual life, fundamentalism, skepticism, mysticism. 
Um, so it seems like it's sort of like a framing in a way of that where our, yeah, we have order, then there's chaos and then there's, I don't know what, yeah, sure. Whatever you want to, uh, <laughs> correlate to mysticism, but, um, I've seen that kind of around me in that everybody obviously has flawed belief systems that they have to encounter and uh, reconcile with, I think, in their lives if they're going to mature at all. Um, but I was just kind of thinking about, like, is there healthy fundamentalism? I mean, is there a fundamentalism that is is not just necessary in that, okay, we have this order that ends up being oppressive and we have to tear it down because I don't, I definitely don't think order is bad and I definitely don't think religion at large is entirely bad. <laughs> I, I think that there are, there's sort of like these things that have clung on to it that are human that have tainted, uh, these things of like order um, that we, when we get into a rigid mindset, it's sort of like you have to take the bad with the good and you just have to outweigh, w w does that bad outweigh the good or vice versa? And I guess I'm kind of in that spot where, um, like if I in the future have kids, I definitely don't want to hand them the religion I grew up with. I don't know if I want to hand them any religion whatsoever necessarily, but I do want to hand them order. And I do think that there is a healthy order that you can hand off and that you can give somebody. And um, I think that through the proper order, we can use that order to sort of uh, maybe combat the fundamentalism of disorder. Um, because, I mean, we can correlate... I've seen so many instances of people who are hardcore atheists and they get converted and then they become fundamentalist Christians or completely vice versa. I think, and r people like Rollins, I think are critiquing obviously not what you believe, but how you believe. So I think that it sort of comes down to critiquing the way our minds work and the way we wrap ourselves around these things. So obviously I think that's the point you're getting at, but I think that, what I'm saying here is I think that like we need to think, I guess, what is the healthy order that we want to cling to? And, um, in that order, what, what way do we critique disorder? Yeah, there's a lot there. So I'm going to respond to a couple of things there. Um, so I, I think that the Richard Rohr uses this term order. Um, and I think, to separate a little bit, I, I don't think he necessarily means order in terms of discipline. Where I think when, you know, when you're, when we're talking about maybe what, we, what we're going to pass on to our kids, it may be discipline or it may be, you know, and, and, and there's a sense at which we're also talks about this that when you're younger, you need this sense of discipline. Cause when you're, when you're six, your brain, isn't really be able to, as able to hold things in tension or to hold paradoxes in tension. You, you have to start with this sense of, of order or of, of a rigid, more rigid thinking. Um, but I also think that part of what you're getting at is this sense of religion or not what you believe, but how you believe is, is this, I think part of what this deconstruction reconstruction process is talking about is not conflating the ideas of religion for 
the thing that's going to fulfill, right? That there is a sense within the mystery or within the mystic, within the, the dimension of it, that that is this thing that we, sure, hang on to, and that's part of why we're all here. And yet, there, that within the structure of church, within fundamentalism, it would be that space, I think, in which um, I don't know that I would, I'd have to think about that, I don't know that I would say that there's maybe a, a healthy fundamentalism anywhere, because fundamentalism, I guess the way I would define it, would be holding on to those views in such a way that they become the ideology, that they become the thing that is going to be fulfilling, right? If we get this one person, this one person in power in our country, or this one political party, or this one ideology, this one economic system, then everything's going to be fine. Um, and th that's where I think it breaks down, is you, you build that box too structurally or too rigid, um, that it can't hold mystery and paradox and all these other items. So, good questions, though. Good thoughts. Anybody else? Any other thoughts? Comments? Yes. Uh, my name is Ashley. And um, I'm a lesbian, and I am in seminary seeking ordination in the United Methodist Church. And uh, I'm not sure if you are, have been watching the news, but the United Methodist Church recently adopted a very anti-LGBT plan that is very scary for those who are already in, in ordained ministry and those who would like to and couples who want to get married in the church. And surprisingly, the decision didn't really discourage me as much as it probably should have. I think because I feel so much more empowered now or so much more inspired to engage in the conversation, uh, even though we had certain liberties because of the one church plan, and now that, that all those liberties are taken, I feel a sense of responsibility to... I don't know, advocate. But I think what's so great about your talk is that it really helped crystallize the rhetoric around that and around what I'm feeling. Is, and um, what I'm feeling is like I don't believe in institutionalized affirmation. What the church says does not validate who I am as a human being and my calling to step into this space and and engage. And I think that it's really important to understand that, and um, I'm really grateful that that sort of clicked with me with your speech, so thank you. Thank you. Yeah, what, if you aren't familiar with what happened with the Methodists this week, um, I think if you are inclined to pray, then that's an area that prayer could be directed, that thoughts could be directed, that hopefully that's a space in which, uh, you know, it obviously shows that we're not as far in some of our religious thinking uh, in our country as some of us hoped we would be. I think when they started, when those talks started, I was very hopeful. You know, I was really, really hopeful that that was going to be something that uh, caused a major shift in the country, um, and it didn't end up that way. And so it's very, very sad. But thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for your journey. Anyone else have anything they want to share this morning? Questions, comments? Great. Well, thank you all so much for coming. I uh, really appreciate you being here, and uh, we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.